This week in KMA Lange and Council backs Wabash Trace Renovation Funding, SMC dedicates new cancer center from snow to sludge removal in KMA Land. Shank Lake supporters ask Page County Supervisors for assistance. Montgomery County Supervisor Donna Robinson declines a re-election bid. I'm Mike Peterson. Plans for an expansion and renovation of a major recreational destination dotted the agenda of two area meetings this week. By a 4 to nothing vote Tuesday night, the Shenandoah City Council approved entering into an agreement with the Southwest Iowa Nature Trails for an extension and resurfacing of the Wabash Trace Nature Trails within city limits. Under the agreement, the city commits to setting aside $50,000 per year of community betterment funds derived from the local option sales tax for a seven-year period for a total maximum commitment of $350,000. Trace Director Becca Castle says plans call for a connector trail stretching from the Trace to A Avenue and Rat Park along the Nishnabata River's south side. Along with that new trail addition, uh, we are proposing repaving uh, the asphalt section of the trail from Sportsman's Park uh, all the way to the River Bridge and then um, paving the crushed limestone portion from the River Bridge to Highway 59 and a new city loop trail that would connect Sportsman's Park to Alonsi Park and effectively connect the two trailheads also. Castle says the city's contribution would assist the Wabash Trace Board in seeking other funding for the $2.7 million project, including a Destination Iowa grant that would cover 25% of the cost. January 31st is the deadline for supporters to apply for the grant. If the council would approve the multi-year commitment from the lost funds, that would be a huge, huge boost, and I think penciling some things out, I think we have a good chance of getting there um, before the 31st to be able to submit this grant. 20% of the city's lost funding is allocated to community betterment projects such as the Trace. Tuesday night's vote followed considerable discussion. Councilman Richard Jones expressed concerns the council's trace funding commitment would hamper projects connected to the streets, the Shenandoah Golf Course, and the Wilson Aquatic Center, among others. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQuaid says the seven-year time frame allows the city to cover the trace and other city projects. Uh, this is one of the things what we met and talked about was just spreading this out. We didn't want to tie up a lot of money at one shot. But by doing uh, a fifty thousand dollar allotment a year uh, over the seven years, uh, you know that, that that keeps us from you know dwindling our account down. Where if something would happen at the pool or whatever, that we wouldn't have the cash on hand. Another concern is that the Iowa Legislature would someday eliminate the ability for city and county government to levy lost dollars. The Queen says such a move would be devastating to the community. I cannot believe uh, this is my personal opinion that. Something like this, a local option sales tax that was voted on by the citizens can be taken away from by the state. This is absolutely, to me, ridiculous. Uh, you know, I'm not a politician. I guess I don't know how the games are played, but I don't see how something that was voted on can be taken away. If we lose that loss, that funds so many of our essential services in town that we will be in dire straits. Wabash Trace officials made a similar funding pitch before the Page County Board of Supervisors Thursday. No decision was made by the supervisors. More discussion of the proposal is expected next week. Faced with dire circumstances a few years ago, Shenandoah Medical Center developed a plan to upgrade its cancer treatment facilities. SMC celebrated the culmination of that mission Thursday morning with an open house for its Robert 
U.S. Homes Family Cancer Center. Local residents and luminaries joined SMC officials and staff members in dedicating the $13 million facility. Matt Sells is in his 11th year as SMC director. Sells says the project started out of necessity. Dr. Babe and I had the opportunity to meet with uh, individuals from Nebraska Medicine, and they came down to Shenandoah and sat us down and said, we will be closing the radiation therapy facility in Shenandoah. And obviously that came as to a little bit of a shock and a little bit scared, right? Uh, we, we knew how vital this service was to our patients and it really had become a lot of who we are at the facility. Uh, over the last 20-plus years. About $2.5 million in local donations were secured for the project. Sells thanks the Holmes family for providing the spark to make the facility happen. Hospital officials tout a new linear accelerator as the facility's centerpiece. SMC Oncology Director Ginny Vandervliet says the new equipment provides radiation treatment closer to home. Our old machine was kind of a basic car, like you would imagine. It got the job done, but any patients that needed special forms of treatment or advanced technology, we were sending all of those patients to Omaha to have their treatment. Now we're able to do that here, which is very nice. So we have better imaging, which means that we can treat a smaller area because we're certain that we're treating the exact right space. And we also are able to treat patients much faster with the new technology. Dr. Mo Abdi joined the hospital as its radiation oncologist in July. Abdi says the center's patient numbers have grown since its soft opening last summer. I looked at the numbers, you know, before I came here, and it got really busy. We have a lot of patients coming all the way, you know, from just, you know, uh, west of Atlantic, all the way from, you know, uh, Glenwood area, right across the river on Nebraska, you know, uh, because there's not that many cancer centers that can offer everything we can. Uh, like we can here in Shenandoah. Other amenities include a new rehabilitation room, a new reception area, and new dressing rooms. For SKI Executive Vice President Greg Connell, the center has deep meaning. Connell is a patient at the facility. I can't tell you how important and comforting it is in order to have this facility traveling 100 to 200 miles at the same time I can treat. You know, cancer is a tough diagnosis, but thank you to the home family Shenandoah Medical Center for making that just a little bit easier with this great facility. Thank you. In addition to the cancer center, the hospital added a new nursery, a nursing station, chapel, and pharmacy scheduled for a March opening. KMA Land residents continue to dig out this week from the twin winter storms, followed by a small event late last week. Heavy snow and cold temperatures are the story so far in January, with the possibility of more precipitation in February. State climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson has been monitoring the snow events around Iowa. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Monday morning, Glisson says the state's weather picture switched from one extreme to another within a month. Mother Nature is known for extremes, and we're certainly vacillating between uh, the third warmest December on record. We were slightly above average on precipitation. And now we're about uh, three to four degrees below average in January with this Arctic air outbreak over the last seven to ten days. Glisson says most of the state has caught up from a snow drought the first part of winter. In fact, the heaviest snow fell in areas that needed moisture the most, including in parched eastern Iowa. Snowfall also surged in southwest Iowa this month. Snow totals anywhere from uh, 10 to 20 inches. Looking at Shenandoah, 4.3 inches below average in December. And then January caught up 16 and a half inches already 
and that's 12 inches above average. So overall for wintertime, about 8 inches to 10 inches above average in, in southwestern Iowa. KMA land snow plows were still addressing the remnants of this month's snowfall. Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen updated the city crew's latest exploits on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning. Basically what they're working on this week, you know, uh, first of the week they started, you know, getting back through the alleys and so forth and getting the big piles that were put up in the, on the corners and in different places. Today they're out, uh, you know, getting a lot of this slush off the streets and everything. So, you know, it's ongoing because uh, uh, they were still out uh, blowing different parts of town yesterday with the big blower, uh, you know, trying to get as much of that moved off the streets. Well, getting streets clear during the recent winter storms wasn't the only task at hand for Public Works employees in Clarenda. City Manager Gary McLarnon informed the Clarenda City Council Wednesday that multiple days of sub-zero temperatures also impacted the city's water system. While commending the efforts of the city employees in Crane Construction who provided assistance, McLarnon says the city has had six water main breaks over the past two weeks. Probably going to blow our budget in the water department, but unfortunately with the way the weather's been, it's going to happen. But and just to kind of give you an idea, six water main breaks in the last two weeks, we had 11 total last year for the whole year. So so right now, thing, things are not looking real good. But like I said, those guys are doing a terrific job um, of getting everything done, and they work very well together as well. One of those water main breaks also resulted in a boil advisory until further notice for residents from North 10th Street to North 13th Street between East Chestnut Street and East State Street. Regarding snow removal from the bookend winter storms earlier this month, McLarnon applauded the Public Works employees and various department members who did their part. Saying it isn't the most glamorous police work, Clarenda Police Chief Keith Brothers also thanked his officers who are out ensuring residents complied with the snow ordinance prompted during both storms. Brothers says a total of 34 citations were issued between the two winter events. The snow that occurred January 11th, there were 15 citations issued. The snow that occurred on January 9th, there were 19 for a total of 34 snow ordinance citations issued. We ultimately ended up, we tried very hard not to do this, but we ultimately ended up having to tow two vehicles for people that absolutely failed to comply. Anyone with further questions regarding the city snow ordinance or the current boil advisory can contact Clarenda City Hall at 712-542-2136. Officials with the Clarenda Youth Corporation are asking Page County support in a new recreational project. Meeting in regular session Thursday afternoon, the county's Board of Supervisors heard from John Byer, who spoke on behalf of the CYC and the Shink Lake Project. Located on the south side of Highway 2 near Agriland FS and owned by the CYC, Byer says they hope to renovate the nearly 74 acres of land with roughly 34 acres of water into a public use. He says they hired HGM nearly three years ago to develop a plan, which Byer presented to the board. And just the highlights of it, major roads to run along the north side of the lake and the west side of the lake, walking trails throughout uh, a 15-spot RV camping area, bathroom and shower facilities, playground, picnic shelters, cabins, and an amphitheater. Additionally, with the Department of Transportation approval to go under the Highway 2 bridge and with Novi Corporation's approval to build along their property, Byers says they'd hook up with the city's trail system. Due to the size of the project, he adds the endeavor has been split into sections. Byers says they've already begun fundraising for the first portion of the project. Our own funds on hand right now, we have over 50% of the funds required for Phase 1A. 
And so we are applying for a number of grants. Uh, we've applied through the Power Connection Iowa Rural Development Council, T-Mobile Kubota Grant, Destination Iowa, Clarinda Foundation, Page County Foundation, Lyle Corporation, Walmart, Shelburne Foundation, and Iowa West. Those are all grants we're in the process of applying for right now. So we're trying to get a variety of sources. No action was taken. The board hopes to discuss funding sources at its meeting Monday. Checking more of the headlines this week, Montgomery County's Board of Supervisors will have at least one new face in 2025. Longtime District 5 Supervisor Donna Robinson announced Tuesday morning that she will not run for another term of the county's Board of Supervisors. Four terms is, is it, and I'm done at the end of the year. So this is my announcement. That's why we have treats. <laughs> Robinson's announcement took place during the board's regular meeting. She says questions regarding her intentions for the upcoming general election prompted her to make the announcement. I am not going to run for re-election this year, and I guess I wanted to just put it out there so that the general public knows that. I think we've talked about it a lot here. Well, that's a lot of people know, but I wanted to know. So if there's somebody out there in the 5th District that is interested in this position, I would love to have them step forward. And March 4th is the first date to file nomination papers for the June 4th primary, with March 22nd as the deadline. Each candidate must garner a certain number of signatures in order to be placed in the primary ballot. Anyone with questions should contact the Montgomery County Auditor's Office at 712-623-5127. Discussions are planned on a proposed tuition agreement between the Clarenda and South Page school districts. At its regular meeting Wednesday evening, the Clarenda School Board directed Superintendent Jeff Privia to enter into discussions on an agreement allowing South Page 7th through 12th grade students to attend classes in Clarenda during the 2024-25 school year. For the past two years, South Page's middle school and high school students have attended classes in the Bedford School District under a similar agreement. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Thursday morning, Clarenda School Superintendent Jeff Privia says South Page officials approached his district about renewing relationships with Clarenda. They had actually been sharing with Bedford for the last couple years, so they approached Clarenda about the possibility of sharing with us again, and in fact, a few years ago that was the case. We're looking at doing that again. Privia says declining enrollment is one reason South Page is exploring an agreement with Clarenda. You know, the South Page School District is working through their student population declining. So it's just an opportunity for them to be a little closer. You know, we're only about 12 miles apart, so it's a little shorter trip than going to Bedford. And, you know, I think it'll be a good thing for both schools. Under the agreement, Privia says South Page would provide its own transportation. No decisions have been made. Privia and South Page Superintendent Tim Hood plan to hammer out an agreement for consideration by both boards as well as state education officials. Privia hopes to have an agreement finalized by late spring. You can hear the full interview with Jeff Privia with a web story at kmaland.com. Fremont County first responders are calling for legislation assisting rural emergency medical service providers. Iowa Congressman Randy Feenstra met with EMS officials in Fremont County during a roundtable Wednesday. Much of the discussion circulated around additional funding opportunities, including the Preserve Access to Rapid Ambulance Emergency Medical Treatment Act, of which Feenstra is a co-sponsor. Among other things, the bill would establish a grant program to streamline the process of becoming a certified EMT and paramedic. Feenstra says the legislation is critical, particularly as volunteer numbers dwindle. We have 135 hours to be an EMT and then 35 hours of training every couple of years and all this stuff. And then, you know, first responders, firemen, you, you name it. It really creates a real 
pinch point when you don't have enough volunteers. The legislation would also provide states with funding to help facilitate the transition of medics from the military into civilian paramedics or EMTs. Dustin Sheldon is a Fremont County supervisor and the Sydney Fire and Rescue Chief. Sheldon says one of the biggest things hindering smaller departments is the educational costs, particularly for volunteer services. Thus, he says a grant assisting in education would significantly boost volunteer services. Whether it be to to get your people recertified at, at certain levels, whether it be to get them in an EMT class, whether it be to put them through a paramedic class, you can see fit to do it. That's, that's an incentive money to bring people into your department instead of saying, okay, I'm going to go volunteer my time, but now I'm still going to have to take out a loan. Sheldon adds EMT and paramedic classes can cost thousands of dollars, adding the even paid services are struggling for help due to the pay level. Fremont County Sheriff Deputy Andrew Wake is also a former EMT and paramedic question whether there are any talks of lowering the age from 18 to be an EMT. Wake suggested a program with school districts to get upper-class students involved in the service, similar to his senior year of high school. Joined the fire department as soon as I turned 18 and became an EMT. And so answering, you know, if I, you know, second semester of school, I was able to answer ambulance calls before and after school. But if it was a built-in program with the school that builds the, build number one gets people into the business and builds that and they're there anyway. And we've also got them for a year. If they go to college, you've got them, you know, during that time if they're back for the summer. And in hopes of avoiding some of the red tape that can be associated with a federal grant process, Feenster hopes to be able to allocate funds to the states to administer the program. We want this very seamless and easy. So I've talked with, with uh, the administration here in our state is if we block grant, it means the dollars come down to the state and then the state administer, administers it because they know best how to do this compared to the federal government. Feenstra added the U.S. Department of Agriculture typically had some funding also available for equipment purchases and has even started a program assisting in constructing a fire station. Sheldon adds the county is also working to establish the EMS advisory board required by the state to implement a tax levy assisting EMS services in the county. If approved by a 60% supermajority by the voters, counties in Iowa can implement a levy of up to 75 cents per thousand dollars valuation. Plans for a big infrastructure project in Sydney received a boost this week. At its regular meeting Monday night, the Sydney City Council unanimously approved a cost estimate of roughly $42,000 for an addition to the Fillmore Street reconstruction project. Plans call for reconstructing Fillmore from Indiana Street to 290th Street with a new addition running an 8-inch water line 120 feet from Fillmore to the fire hydrant next to the fire station. While the city doesn't need additional surveying for the add-on, Oltig Engineering Steve Windish says much of the cost comes from the associated concrete work and replacement. There's decorative concrete, the decorative sidewalk, crosswalks, and that's primarily where the expense is, is to rebuild it, the concrete there. I'm a little bit strong on the amount that they need to take out because I'm not sure how we're going to get to it at this time, you know, until we design it. So I might have a little bit extra buffer in there, but it's surely doable. It makes a lot of sense. Winders says plans would also include running a new line to the fire station. However, Fire Chief Justin Sheldon says that upgrading the line between the station and the hydrant isn't greatly needed due to how infrequently the volunteer crew utilizes the water system inside the station. Right now, the one thing we have in the building is, I think it's a two and a half inch inlet to the building. And we just use that if the hydrant has happened to be busy or something we need to do some kind of washing or something, or we get into a 
you know, where it's really cold outside or something and we want to go ahead and we're not really pushed for time, but we can go ahead and hook to that fitting inside and fill actually inside out of the elements. However, with already tearing up concrete in front of the station, Wendy says it would also be an opportunity to split the hydrant and inlet to the station off to the new water main utilizing a T-pipe. Adds that would allow shutting off water to the station inlet without cutting off water to the hydrant. If we would um, disconnect the 2-inch from the hydrant lead, hook that right onto the 8-inch main beside the hydrant lead, unless you have two pipes coming parallel off, then the two separate systems. You don't have to worry about one affecting the other at all. So I think that's the better way to go. And we're going to tear up all the concrete doing our work anyway, up basically to the corner of the fire hall building in the southwest corner. And that will be replaced under this project. Plans call for wrapping up the project by the end of 2024 with a planned closeout in early 2025. Glenwood officials are formulating an updated agreement for animal control assistance. Meeting in regular session Tuesday night, the Glenwood City Council heard an update from Police Chief Eric Johansson regarding the agreement. Previously, Glenwood Police partnered with a vet clinic in town to provide assistance and services on an as-needed basis. However, Johansson says the rates from the local vet have risen, prompting them to look into other options, including one clinic out of Council Bluffs. They were not willing to waiver on the price. So currently we're in negotiations with Midlands Humane Society out of Council Bluffs. Okay. Um, so we're going to continue that dialogue and try to come to an agreement uh, in regard to that. Under the previous and proposed agreements, the vet clinics have provided impoundment areas, assessed and cared for animals that are brought in, and provided any necessary vaccinations. The city also compensated the clinics for each day an animal is impounded. City Administrator Amber Farden says lower costs benefit both the city and any citizens whose animal might have gotten loose and sent to the vet. Once we take the animal to the vet, we then build the the um, animal owner. So we want to make sure that it's affordable to the owner of the animal also to get their, their, their pets back. So that's we're kind of looking at a different way to do that, or, you know, just make sure it's affordable for both parties. Farnan adds police department, which otherwise handles animal control in town, typically tries to avoid talking, uh, taking them to the vet unless it's needed. State law enforcement officials are renewing their push for legislation aimed at reducing distracted driving. Last year, a bill in the Iowa legislature requiring the use of hands-free technology while driving passed the Iowa Senate but ultimately stalled in the Iowa House due to some GOP lawmakers' concerns over taking away Iowans' rights and violating privacy of their vehicles. While texting while driving is already illegal in Iowa, Iowa State Patrol District 3 Public Resource Officer Ryan DeVault says motorists are allowed to use their phones for calls and GPS directions. It's difficult for us to, to enforce the law the way it's currently written just because we can't differentiate between whether somebody's on their GPS and that's why their phone's in their hand or whether they're actually sending a text message or on the Internet or those sorts of things. A report from Cambridge Mobile Telematics shows that nearly 58% of drivers nationwide admitted to interacting with their phones while driving in 2022, up from 54% in 2020. Despite legislation coming up short last year, DeVault says they continue to push for updated regulations in hopes of making Iowa's roadways safer. Obviously, we believe, and, and statistics will show, that if uh, you get two hands on the wheel, you're obviously going to have better control of your vehicle and have you know, a little bit more focused awareness of what's going on around you uh, while you're out here driving. 
DeVolt pointed to some of the reduction in crashes neighboring states saw after passing similar legislation. According to a survey at the Iowa State Fair last year, 51% of the nearly 1,400 respondents said they sometimes or already have a phone while driving, while 85% say they supported passing hands-free legislation. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information online, log on to KMALand.com where you can hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This Week in KMA Land has been a presentation of KMA News.